it's not just the wealthy in China or the wealthy in Russia or in the Middle East that are markets for second citizenship. The Brits too have become our clients. The Global Passport Investor is your go-to podcast. All right. Well, welcome once again to the Global Passport Investor. I'm your host, Eric Major, an investment migration veteran with over three decades in the game. We continue our world tour of citizenship and residency by investment and all things investment migration. Watching this on YouTube, please leave your questions in the comments section. And if you're listening to this podcast, email your queries at questions at globalpassportinvestor.com. Today, we are discussing FAR escape plans. And before we meet our very special guest, let me tell you where I'm recording this podcast from. I'm in the Barnes branch of the podcast room, a premier podcasting studio in Southwest London. I've discovered this place about a year ago when meeting up at a nearby coffee shop uh, with a British client who lives here in Barnes. And he was concerned about Britain in a post-pandemic era, thinking that both debt and taxes would likely rise. He was also wanting to reclaim the EU privileges that he and his fellow countrymen and countrywomen had lost over Brexit. Uh, both made him realize that he needed a second passport. And so it's not just the wealthy in China or the wealthy in Russia or in the Middle East that are markets for second citizenship. The Brits, too, have become our clients. And if you would have told me four years ago that the United States of America would become one of my firm's largest source markets, I, I would have fallen off the chair. Why would Americans suddenly need to have a second passport or residency? Well, no better than my special guest here today to help answer that question. I'm very pleased to welcome our guest, David L'Esperance, who is the founder and managing director of L'Esperance & Associates. David is a leading taxation and citizenship expert, and we're pleased to have him with us today. David, welcome. Pleasure, Eric, as always. And I'm sure you're going to, in the course of this, talk about how we are uh, original gangsters uh, in this area, as many of the Canadians are uh, having entered it in the early 1990s. Indeed. It's always great to have fellow Canadians uh, on the show because we're always very proud to say that the industry um, emanated uh, and was pioneered through uh, Canada's launch of the Immigrant Investor Program in the uh, mid to late 80s. And I know you were part of that journey, uh, maybe more on the tax side. But in fact, I, I want to explore that a little bit. You know my story, David. I've shared it with our listeners. You mm -hmm. know, I started this residency and citizenship by investment uh, world by working at a bank. In fact, two banks that were involved in that sector. Your route was uh, working through, as I understand it, a customs and immigration officer. What's was the spark, the initial spark that made you move into this uh, international taxation world? Well, I grew up in Windsor, um, across from Detroit, child of the auto industry. So my father would wake up in Canada every day and go work in the States. And what was quite common, because it's only a kilometer yeah. or for the American listeners, a mile, a 
across the river, uh, was when mothers would feel the contractions they used to run over to Henry Ford Hospital and have what they now call anchor babies. Yes. And um, by the time my mother got to me, number three, my parents were RH blood incompatible. So when she got pregnant with me, uh, the doctor said, don't be screwing around driving across the bridge. You have that kid in Canada who's going to need blood transfusions. So literally the only reason that myself and my younger sister don't have U.S. citizenship is because my parents had incompatible blood. So I kind of grew up with Canada, U.S. tax, taxation, citizenship-based taxation at the breakfast table. And you're right. I needed a summer job. My father was implementing the auto pack. Uh, oh, which is right. a predecessor to the free trade agreement. That's for right. GM. Yeah. I needed a job. Um, and uh, so he got me a job. He knew all the customs people, of course. So he got me a job working at the Windsor Detroit tunnel, which is the busiest car entry. A couple of days of, you know, sweating in my little booth and seeing the immigration people with their feet up reading the newspaper. I thought, that would be the job for me. And then we moved to Toronto and I did the same thing at Toronto airport, Pearson, uh, the old terminal one, which got knocked down for the new terminal one, mm-hmm. um, going through law school, never thinking I was going to do in this area, but, um, you know, it was just a great gig going through law school. And it was only after I got called to the bar in 1990 that I realized how much power I had and how little training I had. Um, <laughs> And yeah, those uh, three things days. happened in yeah. yeah 1990. My law school study partner went work for Baker McKenzie in Hong Kong. So that was prior to the 97 Andover. So mm-hmm. I was dealing with all the, the, the clients that he was referring to me. Um, we, of course, the immigrant investor, Canadian immigrant investor program was in place then. Mm-hmm. And so I was running um, up and down the Gulf, meeting all the private banking clients for Standard Charter well, and in effect, what was called British Bank of the Middle East, which HSBC. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and also I did my first U.S. expatriation, which is for the for a Canadian or a Brit or somebody else to become non-resident for tax purposes simply means minimizing their time where they are and maybe establishing contacts or minimizing their contacts in the departing country. For the U.S., they have this unique citizenship-based taxation. So, yeah, I'm, um, I'm told it's one of only a few in the world, if not the only uh, Eritrea. practical Eritrea, somewhere Africa. But, but I remember. Eritrea does not have the equivalent of the IRS. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> or, the, or the means to enforce citizenship-based yeah. taxation. Basically, you know, I remember there's those early days, uh, David. In fact, uh, you were very close to the financial services community. That's I, probably how we mm-hmm. connected in yep. those. Um, in those early nineties. And I remember Both your national bank and then, yeah, your, and then my HSBC, HSBC years, days. you know, yeah. we were wooing all these uh, guys like you, these lawyers, immigration lawyers, tax advisors uh, in Toronto and elsewhere. And you're right. We were also very busy with this massive wave uh, of demand from Hong Kong, obviously pre 97 and the concern. And I remember in those early years, um, it really was the smart capital. It was really the top end client that was um, a, a decade ahead of that massive curve that ensued. And um, well, we'll get to that in a minute. Cause I, I get the feeling that we're seeing this also in other markets, uh, including in the United States and the UK. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Um, mm-hmm. But tell me, how, how did you, um, how did L'Espérance and Associate come uh, to, to, to come about? How did, uh, at what point did you decide, okay, I'm going to take this knowledge and experience that you had acquired um, over the years and, and go solo and build a practice around it? When did that happen? 
Well, um, another part of the background is I always have to preface this disclosure with, uh, I swear my siblings and I didn't go out nightclubbing looking for Europeans to dance with. But um, my sister married a Latvian, then a German. My brother married an Italian. I married a Scotswoman, then a Pole. And my younger sister married an Irishman. So I was doing lineage citizenships literally before I got called to the bar. Um, And for all the Les Browns, I'm the only one of the four of us actually pick up and move to Europe. But all my nieces and nephews and children have done everything from kind of gap years, study, living and working in, in, uh, in Europe. Uh, so I saw the the importance of that, just as our ancestors came from somewhere to go come to Canada or you know to the U.S. And that had a profound effect not only on their lives but on all the future generations. Likewise, mm-hmm. lineage citizenship has an impact on those who reclaim it, mm-hmm. not only their lives but all again the future generations. So my niece, for example, who had an Italian uh, grandmother grandparents. Uh, and it's got Italian citizenship, uh, she now has children who now have Italian and Canadian and dad happens to be Belgian, Belgian Perfect. citizenship. Perfect. Uh, so, so quite important. So it was really, mm. I was looking at how residence citizenship and domicile impact you from a tax point of view, a family law point of view, sovereign risk, mobility. And uh, as well, as Canadians know, the immigration minister in Canada, you know, changes with every cabinet shuffle. So Correct. I very quickly learned I had to have more than Canada as a tool in my toolbox. So yeah. I really started looking at all kinds of jurisdictions um, it, it, for the clients that I was dealing with. Again, Hong Kong, China, Asia clients, Americans. And yeah, and it's um, remarkable how that client. Yeah, the, you know, at the high net worth level, it's remarkable how it's not necessarily uh, predetermined in their mind where they want to go, where they need to go, or they, you know, thinking of their family. They they have views on a few different places, and and I like you felt you know Canada was a great place, but it wasn't necessarily the solution for all instances in all families. And, and, and in the same way, internationalized my expertise and, and knowledge of other jurisdictions that also had golden visas, investor visas, and, and citizenship by investment. So you and I followed a similar path. You, you clearly stayed as well, very connected to the your expertise in taxation. I, I want to dive a little bit deeper into that, uh, but just referencing the era and the time in which we're sitting, we're in 2024 and by all accounts, it's going to be a famous year for elections. Uh, Allow me, David, to quote directly from your uh, most recent blog on your website, you say here, the rapidly approaching U S election is being widely described as existential. The reasons range from the type of administration Donald Trump would deliver in a second term to a fear that numerous tax the rich proposals would become law should the Democrats win both houses of Congress and the presidency. You go on to say across the pond here in the UK, the next UK election will most certainly see a labor majority government and possibly the end of the non-dom tax regime. There's even significant pressure within the labor party to bring a new wealth tax. So David, please elaborate. Uh, to, for our listeners' benefit here, why you think the the two elections in the U.S. and the U.K. are key events for high net worth individuals this year, and what should they do about it? Well, I've been using this analogy, which uh, Eric, as a Canadian, you can appreciate as a 
dangerous for a Canadian to use, which is I tell my clients to imagine they're in a wildfire zone. So what do you do when you're in a wildfire zone? And what, what are those wildfire concerns? So they may be tax the rich policies. They may be for, for example, the non-DOM community or even the, the wealthy community in the UK. That's a big concern. Mm-hmm. It may be um, mass shootings. Again, I grew up across from Detroit when it was murder city, but then it was two drug dealers shooting at each other with Saturday night specials. Now you have AR 15s and people walking into bowling alleys. Yes. It may be increased anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim, anti Roe um, versus Wade kind of issues. And, yeah. yeah. And all kinds of those political polarization. So if you have a wildfire, what do you do? Well, I'm going to fight the wildfire. I'm going to vote. I'm going to register. I'm going to contribute to super PACs. That's great, but no fire chief drops a crew into a hot zone without having an exit. Mm-hmm. And so we look at, at second residences and citizenships as kind of fire insurance. Yes. And they we look at it. the cost of that as kind of like what's the premium for that fire insurance? Mm-hmm. Well, if you've got an Irish grandmother, that's a different cost than if you have to go, for example, through a, get your EU country citizenship through Malta. Different cost, but you, of course you have to have the right family background to have the lineage claim you either Mm -hmm. do or you don't um and then you look at the fire escape plans and for americans they tend to kind of fall into three categories one would be what i'll call the go bag option oh my god there's been a hurricane or an earthquake or a dirty bomb i'm going to go somewhere Mm. for a period of time you know of a few months but i'm not going to spend so much time in that other location Location. where i'm going to become tax resident Mm-hmm. Um, and that could be everything from New Zealand to Canada to Iceland to the Algarve. Um, the next option is, oh, my God, insert the other political party that you are not has gotten in. I'm going to go somewhere for four years. Mm-hmm. Well, you're going to become tax resident in that jurisdiction. So we want to make sure that you can put, but you're going to remain an American. So you're going to remain a U.S. taxpayer, mm-hmm. but you want to not only maintain, you know, make sure that you comply with all U.S. rules, mm-hmm. but that you don't jump out of the U.S. kind of tax pot and into somebody else's tax fire. And then the last is kind of the full-blown expatriation, mm-hmm. which is an excellent tax planning strategy. And it really, it, you legally and permanently leave the U.S. tax system, but you have to make sure it's planned and executed properly because the cost of failure is significant. significant. You know, it makes the cost of proper advice kind of a rounding error compared to the penalty. Mm-hmm. So again, the high net worth, the, the, you know, clients need to assess, okay, what's the, what's the damage to my fiscal house or my well-being of my family mm-hmm. should the wildfire hit there and yeah. compare that to, to the, the cost, cost of, of fire insurance of, and a proper fire escape plan. Indeed. And and, and it, this is the revelation that most Americans have come uh, to finally come to grasp with. Uh, I would say not just because of the pandemic, certainly post pandemic, uh, but just, just with the plight of, of the world affairs and also domestic affairs, a lot of wealthy Americans are saying, you know what, 
I may not be as prepared as some to pick up my bags and fully leave, and and therefore the tax implications of that being one. But at least I'd like that option. So it's very much about optionality in my experience. That's a big. It's yeah. a big segment. Uh, but at, at, at the other extreme, you do have some who are thinking, you know what, this is not for me anymore. I want to pick up my bags and expatriate. Now, this is where our worlds, you and I collide because uh, typically if 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 an american's at that stage in, in their mindset where they really do want to leave well first they got to have a, another passport another citizenship um so mm-hmm. and, and 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 so so you as well as i know very well what the landscape for that is um but assuming that gets sorted which is always the first step yeah this is how we collaborate you and i we get that first step um, secured and, and, and done with, and then you're in the background working on that exit strategy. Could you walk us through a little bit what, what, um, what that entails? Is it basically a snapshot of their assets at a particular moment and then calculating whatever exit tax applies or are there, or is there more sophistication to, to, to planning, uh, the eventual exit in that very extreme case? And again, most Americans don't go to this route, but some do. And looking at the stats, David, am I right? Every year, year in, year out, that number of, of uh, applications for expatriation has grown by double digits, query whether it's domestic or, or uh, Americans abroad that are leading those figures. Anyways, I'm putting a lot on the table. Why don't you comment on that? What, what's the process and what are, what are the pitfalls uh, to be aware of? Sure. So the expatriation is leaving the, the, the um, U.S. tax system properly. And I'll step back. I won't try to go too deep technically, but the first have to understand who is a U.S. taxpayer. So that's a citizen, a green card holder, or somebody who spends too much time in the United States. Correct. Something called a substantial presence test. Mm -hmm. If they trigger that, then they may be able to rebut that presumption through a closer connection or a tax treaty, for example. And all three are are deemed U.S. persons, right? I think that's the legal term. U.S. persons for tax purposes. U.S. persons for tax purposes. Okay. So if you're one of those. Which means that you're subject to, to worldwide income and capital gain, U.S. worldwide income and capital gains tax. You may have offsets foreign tax credits, et cetera, but we don't want to go that deep. So if you want to get out of that, you need to give up that citizenship or that green card. Now, if you are giving up your citizenship or a long-term green card, eight out of 15 years, then we look at whether something called the expatriation tax regime applies to you. And they, we ask, do you trigger one of three things? Number one, do you have more than 2 million in worldwide assets? as of the day you relinquish that green card or renounce that citizenship? Or do you have a, a certain amount of average tax paid, which is indexed for, that's federal tax paid, not federal tax liability, federal tax paid. So you look at your 1040 or 1040 for the last five years, mm-hmm. you add it all up, divide by five, and is that number more than I believe in 2024 to 184,000? Mm-hmm. Or... Are you unable to certify that you are tax U.S. tax compliant for the previous five years? And that is a case that if we have time, we'll delve into uh, the green card holders sometimes have difficulty with. But if you are what's called a covered expatriate, two taxes apply to you. One is Section 877A, which is the famous exit tax. That's a deemed disposition for capital gains purposes. Mm-hmm. 
and you are you have a capital gains deemed disposition. You have an exemption before you start paying. That's eight hundred, I believe, eight hundred and seventy-seven thousand for twenty twenty-four. But you start paying federal tax on every dollar above that top rate in the, in the United States, twenty-three point eight percent. So you would then have that deemed disposition for capital gains purposes. One thing that people are are often overlook, they've heard of the exit tax, but they haven't heard of section 2801, mm. which is the inheritance tax. Mm. If a covered expatriate leaves a gift or a, um, a bequest to a U.S. person, recipient, mm-hmm. heir or gift recipient, the, the, the recipient pays the tax. Mm. Normally, estate tax is paid by the estate the 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 heir gets the heir. inheritance net of the net estate tax that's already tax. been paid. Correct. In this case, the estate of the covered expatriate isn't subject to tax, but the tax is paid forty percent in the, the hands of the, the recipient, the and they don't have some, and they don't have a, a the big exemption, which is which is called the unified credit, which for this year, for example, is forty fourteen point seven million. You've got a spouse; you're now talking twenty nine point four million exemption before estate taxes. That so you can see it's starting to get a little complicated. Mm. So the timing. So uh, I describe myself as an immigration savvy tax advisor, a tax savvy immigration advisor. So I look at how the two integrate. Uh-huh. So the problem is there's a lot of excellent tax lawyers, but they don't know, you know, the, the immigration, immigration side. side. And there's a lot of immigration lawyers who don't know the tax side. Yeah. And so I sit kind of Smack across between those, those two yeah. between the two and looking at it multi-jurisdictional. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. Um, so that's the sweet spot. So we have a lot of Americans who sit there and we run the numbers and we say, okay, well, what, what, what is your, what's your, wildfire concern. Uh-huh. Well, I'm worried that they're going to so there's a big case that people have heard about. I'm going to I'm about to write an article for IMI on this on something called the Moore case. Uh-huh. And that yeah. deals with the constitutionality of this deemed disposition. In uh-huh. this it's a different section than the expatriation tax, something called guilty tax. But the more so the Supreme Court has heard the the arguments and they'll come out with their decision in January. Okay. Well, how's that going to impact expatriation? If they deem that the it's taxation is unconstitutional, yeah. that means there's no Section 877A tax. There's no exit tax. So you've yeah. removed a major barrier yeah. to people expatriating. Yeah. If they deem it is constitutional, well, then you have um, authorized a future wealth tax. Yes. Yes. And or the billionaire taxes, Biden's proposal, the wealth taxes, the Biden Saunders proposal. Mm-hmm. Well, now you've got a So when one, you've eliminated a disincentive to expatriate. Mm-hmm. And on the other case, you've you've, you've, you've cemented increased the incentive. Yeah. Yeah. So the either incentive. way that SCOTUS decides, Supreme yeah. Court of the United States decides, um, you're going to see an increase in expatriation. Mm-hmm. So we now have lots of people who are going, oh, well, whichever. More is major, so I'm going to get ready. Um, before we get on to uh, our next question, David, I, I do want to remind our guests, uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, to please leave your questions in the comments section. And for those of you listening to the podcast, we invite you to email us at questions at global 
PassportInvestor.com.